Thank you for joining us today in Sunday worship service. I'm Harold, lucky and blessed to be one of the pastors here. It's so good to worship Jesus and to come together to learn from his word. We're going through a series in Proverbs. Last week we heard about wisdom in our words, wise words. I heard it was an outstanding message by Pastor Daniel Dinko. Today it's parental wisdom. If you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 9. All right, I'll read this for us. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place in your head a graceful garland. She'll bestow on you a beautiful crown. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This author of Proverbs chapter 4 teaches, and he passes along wisdom which he tells us he got from his father and mother. A lot of the wisdom that we learn, even in the Holy Scriptures, has been passed along generation to generation. I mean, I love how this falls upon our ears and our hearts. In verses 3 and 4, he says, When I was young and tender, my father and my mother taught me. It sounds like he was an only child there. And so today... Much-needed wisdom for parents. Please don't turn, tune out if you're not a parent. Please don't tune out. This is for all of us. But much-needed wisdom for parents because wisdom usually comes to us first through our parents. Let me tackle this first topic. Let me just start by saying this, though. What do we do, though, however, with unwise parents? What do we do with the foolishness or the apparent ungodliness of parents that we may have had or continue to have. What do, what do we do about that? Well, in traditional cultures, parenting uh, is about activity. It's about training and control, making sure that your kids turn out all right. In modern cultures, our culture is dominated by this, parenting has become about affirmation. Traditional culture, active training and control. Modern culture, affirmation. Now you see, the Proverbs are richer than both, much richer. And the main goal of parenting here is actually to make children wise. Make children wise. Can we have that slide projected up? The traditional, modern and then the Proverbs here, it's to make children wise. Next one, thank you. And it's to make them actually children, men and women, who can discern for themselves and choose wisely. 
not to control, not to affirm, or make our children feel better about themselves, but to actually grow them wise. For in wisdom, the scriptures tell us, there's going to be mutual delight between parent and child. Verses 8 and 9, which we read, you will be protected on the path of wisdom. You will be guided. There will be beauty. There will be honor and a graceful garland that will be bestowed upon your neck. Now here's the fact of the matter. As we age... We're going to notice a lot more things about our aging parents. Uh, for some of you who happen to become first-time parents, I'm pretty sure you recognize right away, how in the world did my parents do this? Especially if you had immigrant parents. How loyal, how sacrificial, how enduring. How do they have a full-time job six or seven days a week and manage me when I was born? And so our admiration and respect goes to the roof. At the same time, we also notice more of the weaknesses and sins of our aging parents as we age. Some parents have abjectly failed. Uh, some parents have been way too harsh and abusive. Some parents have abandoned or neglected their children. Some parents have just outright defrauded you. Or they embarrassed you, or they continue to embarrass you. I mean, we do have to tackle this, right? What do we do with that? Here's scriptures say you must learn to honor your parents. You're commanded by God to honor your parents. No matter what they've done, no matter how they are today, no matter what stage of life you're in or what stage of life they're in. It's commandment number five. And notice it's commandment number five before all the other social and relational commands. You see, this is a constant. It's a moral foundation for parent and child relationships and all relationships to come. My friends, how you deal with unwise parents, if you can learn to honor even the unwise, ungodly parents, how you do this is the moral nucleus from which all of your relationships can flourish. If not, it'll just continue to do more damage to you. So you're going to become anti-authoritarian. Um, anti become mistrusting. You're going to overreact to things, over-aggressive or overly defensive. You become bitter. You stay bound. You stay bound. You see, here's what's ironic about the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures tell us in the book of Proverbs that you never really fully grow up and become an adult until you actually learn to be free from your parents. And you have to be free from your parents in order to honor your parents. Much more on this later. But you never really fully mature and grow up if you stay bound and so affected and obsessed and so hurt. You haven't learned how to honor your parents. And with that, now we move on. How do we go about wise parenting? How do we go about wise parenting? Here, I can safely say this. I feel very comfortable in saying this. 
half of every parent, half of all the parents in this room are below average. You can't dispute that, right? Some of you can't take it. Like you never got an F on an exam. You're never below average. But the scriptures have so much to say about what it takes to become and to actually exercise wise parenting. It's going to take two things, instruction and intervention. Instruction and intervention. First, instruction. We're going to project this verse from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. And it reads, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. All right, so notice from the Holy Scriptures, what is bound up in the heart of a child? What's natural? What's inherent? What's inborn? Not wisdom, folly. Children are not born naturally wise. Children have folly bound up in their hearts. This is antithetical to our modern culture and teaching and climate, is it not? I think all parenting, social, economic, educational, political teaching that goes like, all children are so good and wise, just let them be, is awfully naive and wrong. The scriptures tell us that folly is bound up from the start, and the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Now, I'm going to just skate right on through the controversy of this, what this means. The rod of discipline, that word does not mean corporal or physical pain every time. Not at all, not at all. But it's a rod of loving discipline in which you have to teach and instruct right from wrong. What is the goal in the job of parenting? It's actually to teach and to instruct what is wise versus foolish, what is good from bad, what is right versus wrong. Because children will not know that otherwise. Look, children are self-centered. Children are wrapped up in themselves. Unless a parent tells them, you know, if you act like that, if you do that, if you say that, other people are going to feel this about you. Children will not understand it until a parent or someone teaches them otherwise. You look at a child's tendencies or their drives or their wiring. And a lot of parents, if you're discerning and you pay attention to them, you see the underbelly, you see the dark side of that. You see what kind of ruin or even hurt or devastation that this can cause. Parents ought to notice this. And if parents notice this about their children, you're able and should teach and instruct otherwise. Because children will not know otherwise unless they are taught. How do we go about wise parenting? Well, of course it begins with biblical, moral, wise instruction. Look at verses 5 through 7, which we just read. And I want you to notice it says, get, 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 four times. Verse 5 and verse 7. This suggests to us what? We don't have that. We need to go get it. How do children go get it? Wisdom usually comes first. Usually comes first through parents who want to be wise. You see, if you look in this current climate and you stand by what you might call even American values, I wonder where American values came from. It didn't just come from the Constitution. It was steeped in a Christian worldview. 
and you say racism is wrong, it's downright wrong, sex trafficking is downright evil and wrong, and you should not take advantage of the poor, the migrant, the oppressed, the vulnerable, and the weak. If you say all those things, can I ask you, how do you explain why those things are wrong? Why would it be wrong? How do you instruct your child good from bad or why this is right versus wrong? Because if you go to school, you can graduate from the finest school today. Jeffrey Epstein did. And graduation from the finest world-class universities in the world does not necessarily mean you were morally instructed or morally formed. Because science and academics alone does not teach you these things. It can't. It actually can't. Because if you look at the natural order of things, if you look at just how does real life really work, here's how it works. If you're strong, you're gonna beat up the weak. If you're rich, you're gonna get better lawyers and pay off and commit crimes with impunity. If you're politically tied or wired, you're always gonna escape. You're never gonna really get caught. Isn't that normally how the world works? And now we have children growing up in these environments and think, look, it pays off to take shortcuts. You don't really have to pay attention to principles or values or conscience. The strong eat the weak. The strong survive. The strong are the ones who are triumphant. Who in the world is going to go around and, and then say, but no, 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 no. That's all wrong. You should protect and defend and speak up and rescue the weak. You see, as soon as you say to anybody, especially your child, you should do this, you should not do that. You ought to do this, you ought not to do that. That's not a scientific or academic statement. That's a moral statement. That's a religious statement. That's an ethical statement. That is something that parents or teachers have to pass along for children to understand the difference. To understand the difference. How do we go about wise parenting, my friends? The main job of parenting throughout the Proverbs is not affirmation, and it's not just active control. It's about instructing them to become wise. Here's a second. Second way we go about wise parenting. Intervention. Okay, intervention. Now, what is this intervention like? Let me try to unpack this. The word for discipline is very common throughout the book of Proverbs. It actually literally means to coach, coach. And coaching is a combination of instruction and discipline. Remember the rod? But here's the point, the main point. To let a child loose and free to determine their own right from wrong is parental malpractice. According to Proverbs, this is parental malpractice. To let the child decide for himself or herself. Let's project Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he was old, he will not depart from it. Now, I will never forget this because I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. Uh, my teacher was Doug Stewart. He wrote an entire book that mentions this verse, so I can never forget it. He says, this is probably one of the most misunderstood, mistranslated, misapplied verses in all the Bible. It is. Let me try to explain. When you read this verse, what does it sound like? If you do active, good, wise training at a young age, when your child grows up, that child will stay faithful and true to the straight and narrow path, right? It's comforting. It's kind of a comforting promise that if you do your job at a young age, when they grow old, they'll stick with it. 
Doug Stewart pointed out that in the original Hebrew, that English translated word should is not there. All English translations actually added the word should. Now I want you to read this verse in your head without the word should. And then it sounds totally different. Train up a child in the way he goes or she goes. Even when he or she is old, he or she will not depart from it. Mm. If the word should is not there, it moves from comforting promise to a sobering warning. And here's the warning. If you let your child run loose and free, determine they're right or wrong, you make them believe that they're the center of the world, the whole world is in trouble. Because when he or she grows up, they will stubbornly, selfishly, foolishly, unwisely, self-destructively, other people hurting, they will continue to do that. Intervention. This is why parents are called to intervene. I read this from Jerome Kagan, the dean of child psychologists at Harvard, who once observed, we studied this trait, or this, uh, we've studied this across 36 cultures. We now know children, all children are kind of born pretty much with the temperament. I see three dominant ones. Here are three temperament types. Some people are anxious. Some other children are aggressive. And then some are born optimistic. Jerome Kagan said, we've seen these three dominate across all the cultures, all children. The anxious types are the ones that say, I'm out of here when trouble comes. Let's get out of here. The aggressive types are the ones that say, I'm going to get it before it gets me. The optimistic types are wired to say, it's really not going to ever get me. It's all going to get better. The anxious types are going to say, let's get out of here. Aggressives say, I'm going to get it before it gets me. The optimist, always sunny. It's never going to get that bad. Everything will turn out just right. Now, here's the really, really interesting part. Every one of us in this room, if you actually even think about your children, they probably fit dominantly into one. None of these temperament types, though, is, in, is appropriate for all real-life situations. Not one of these temperament types is actually suitable or wise in every situation. <laughs> for instance, anxious types are much likelier to survive in truly very dangerous situations. And in those really die, dire life-or-death situations, if you delay acting or you try to fight it back, those two actions could actually be fatal. So if you're anxious then, you might survive. Anxiety-driven people are like early alarm clocks. They pick up danger like all the time, oftentimes when danger is not even there, but when there is real danger, they never miss it. Aggressive types are born to do best and thrive in situations that are moderately dangerous. Listen, anxious types survive in truly dangerous, excessively dangerous situations. Aggressive types will survive in moderately dangerous situations. When? 
I'm gonna get you before you get me. I can handle this. You're confident and bold and you do something about it and you solve it and it happens to pay off. Now, whereas the optimistic types, do you know when optimists survive best? In the most lowest, easiest, stable, trouble-free situations of life in which evasive action, doing nothing, cannot make that positive situation go bad. So here's the point. Each temperament type can be highly inappropriate unless you are exactly in the right situation. Each temperament type is only appropriate when you're exactly in the right situation. You see, for all my anxiety-filled friends, you always see danger. You're always afraid. You're the early alarm clock. You have to be told, you know what? You're not to blame. You're not to blame. Chillax, relax a little. It's not your fault. It's never going to be that bad. That's what anxious people have to be told. Aggressive people, you have to take them apart and then you say, you know what? Uh, sometimes you are to blame. It is your fault. You caused that fight. You're overbearing. You're harsh. You're crazy. Calm down. And then you got to go these sunny, all the time optimists, these Southern Californians. You got to look them dead in the eye and say, the big earthquake might come. <laughs> you might get sick. Things happen that are bad. You might die. Optimists have to be told, you got to check in with reality. Aggressive types have to be told, hey, it sometimes is your fault. You need to be more humble and patient. And anxious types have to be told, please, chillax and trust in the Lord. Now, here's a parent's job. If you know your child, you know their wiring, you know what type they are, it is your job to instruct and intervene so that your child gains a wider range of responses to real life situations. It is your job that your child learns to adapt and adjust, pick up a new skill set. Because if your child always acts anxious because he or she is anxious, only certain situations are going to turn out right. If your child is always aggressive but never learns to be humble and patient and wait, only situations that turn out right will turn out right. And if your child is always optimistic, they got to learn some pessimism. They got to learn some reality. They have to have some cold dosages sometimes. Now you see what parenting is here? It is to make your children wise. Oh, by the way, what personality type was Jesus? I like it when sometimes this question is posed. Like on the Myers-Briggs personality type, what scale is he? Is he an IE or an I? Was he an N? Oh, I don't know. And then there's something very popular going around called Enneagrams. You get like assigned a number for your certain personality. And I read on some blogs that they assigned a number to Jesus. It makes me a little cringy. That's the word that my daughters use. Dad, you're cringy. I'm going to use it. That's cringy. Because I don't know if you can assign a number personality type to Jesus. Here's why. He always did what was right at the right time with the right motives. He was the most versatile and adaptive person, but perfect. But we're not. That's why we got to go about wise parenting. What do you do with unwise parents? You must learn to honor them. Honor does not mean you like. 
Honor does not mean you emotionally love. Honor does not mean you admire. If you don't know what it means, go back to one of our older sermons. Honor means you've got to be set free from your parents in order to actually honor them back. And then how do we go about wise parenting? Instruction and intervention. So who gets this wisdom? Is anybody with me here? Has been more been trying to roll through this? Do you feel a need, a desperation kind of welling up in your heart? Say, God, I need that kind of wisdom to raise our children to be wise. Well, throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, people went to the king. People went into the royal courtroom to hear and to gain wisdom. Likewise, you and I get wisdom. You always get wisdom by coming under a king. Who gets this wisdom? By coming under a king. And whatever your king is, that will be your wisdom for life. Oh, so in front of King Solomon, who was endowed with the wisdom of God, there appeared two women fighting, pleading, claiming that the one remaining child was theirs because evidently another child died in the middle of the night. King Solomon had to exercise judicial authority and wisdom and decide the case of these two women who was the real mom. And he made a brilliant move. It was a wise move to discover who the real mom was. Here's what he did. Well, let's just cut the baby in two. You get half each. One woman immediately screamed, yes, cut them, divide them in two, tear them in two. Why would that one woman make such an insane remark? Why would the first woman actually agree with King Solomon's trick and go along with, yeah, let's just cut them in two. You take half, I'll take half. But the child would die. Here's why. King Solomon wanted to discern her true king. And in that first woman's life, motherhood was her king. Becoming a mom was her king. Being known as a mom was her king. It was her happiness. It was her worth. It was her identity. And you know when you get so obsessed with something, something is too important to you? She got so jealous and angry that if she can't have it, nobody else should have it too. So the first woman actually showed that she really didn't care about the child after all. She really only cared about herself. You know, if parented or family is your king, you actually ultimately don't care about the parents. You actually don't care about your children. You actually don't care about the family. Ultimately, you care about yourself more than the family. Oh, but the second woman, here's what she said. Give her the child. Please, please, please do not cut the child in two. Don't kill the child. Give her the child. And of course, immediately King Solomon knew that's the real mom because a real mom cares more about the life of the child than her own. A real mom does not have motherhood as her king. A real mom has love and sacrifice overflowing where the life of the child is more important than hers. I want you to see, my friends, do you not see a glimpse of Jesus here? Don't you see Jesus did the same? 
He cared so much more about the life of his children, about the lives of those who would come to him by faith. He cared so much more about those who would be born again by the gospel of Jesus Christ that he would rather give up his life than give up yours. And if the king of all kings, the wisest and truest of them all, the omnipotent sovereign ruler and creator of all the universe, if that king of kings could love you like that, could love you to that point, can I just ask you a question this morning? How is he not your king? How is he not my king? Nobody will love you better. Nobody will love you longer. Nobody will love you more truly. Nobody will love you at the cost of infinite blood and perfect righteousness at a cross like Jesus. Now friends, here's what's gonna happen. When you come under the lordship of the true king, Jesus Christ. He'll change how you go about parenting. He changes every relationship. He'll change everything. You're going to be more concerned now about not your children being so happy with you or you being hip and cool in today's world or controlling everything. When Jesus, what he did for you, becomes so real and beautiful to you, it moves you. It owns you. It becomes your king. He becomes your king. It's going to change how you parent. You're going to want to parent and make your children wise. And only Jesus can do this. He'll enable you to forgive your unwise parents and truly move on. I've got just three practicals for parenting. I'll just close with this. Practical parenting. You know that old Disney fairy tale well, the woman is looking in the mirror and she says, who's the fairest of them all? She's that evil witch. Who's the fairest of them all? Who's the fairest of them all? Can I ask, we should ask a better question in our households because our spouses and our children, they do hear and see and process and remember things. I hope that they see parents not looking at the mirror and say, who's the most beautiful of them all? Or who's the smartest of them all? Who's the most successful of them all? Who's the most richest of them all? Who's the most hippest of them all? I hope our children do not grow up in that environment where that is the question that they hear all the time. The most important question should be, who's the wisest of them all? Who's the wisest of them all in your home? And my wife, Sunny, and my two teenage daughters, Taylor and Elizabeth, are going to be much more affected when they see their dad and their husband look to and prize and cherish and need and rely upon the word of God and prayer and godly community and counsel because that will signal to them, Lord Jesus is the wisest of them all in this house. My friend, your spouse and your children, they know, they know. They'll pick up who's the wisest of them all. Oh, I hope to God it's the King and the Lord Jesus. And if you have failed like me and you continue to fail, this kind of rips your heart. I want to encourage you, my friend, 
one of the greatest things you can do with your spouse or your children is to show forth genuine repentance, to show remorse, to apologize, to take steps, practically speaking, to restore a household where the entire house looks to Jesus as the wisest of them all. For if you do not, folly is bound up in our hearts. Here's a second practical tip. How does wisdom get passed along best? How does wisdom get passed along best? Yes, instruction. Yes, intervention. Yes, the word of God. Yes, prayer. Yes, counsel and community. All good, you need them all. But there's one indispensable quality. Everything I just mentioned requires time. Everything I just mentioned requires time. My friend, your children and my children, it really does come down to how much time can you spend with them before you ask for the life-changing quality time to occur. Oh, I heard this from another pastor that convicted me. We're disgusted and we scoff at ancient medieval days or even biblical times where they're offering children as sacrifices to these false gods and false worship, even to these demons. You would actually offer up living, breathing, beautiful children and you would sacrifice them to the gods. You know what this one preacher said? He says, well, child sacrifices are still occurring all the time. They still occur today. Do you know how? We just put them at the altar of our careers. My church or ministry, my fame, my leisure, my rest, my money. You can't have it both ways. Wisdom is passed along best with time. Last but not least, for those of you who really do desire, anytime this topic comes up, it's uncomfortable, you're hesitant, parenting, like you can't wait to become a parent. You've been praying to become a parent. You've been trying in your marriage so many times. It hasn't worked out. You want to become a parent. Can I tell you, my dear friend, this morning, all your desires and prayers to be want to provide and love and sacrifice and raise a child, I believe they're from Jesus. And I believe that makes you more like Jesus. But when you become a part of a new family called the Church of Jesus Christ, there are now so many ways you can parent. You really don't have to have kids of your own. You're not deficient. You're not lacking in any way. You don't fall short in any way. Do you know how I know this? Because you get to join Jesus in raising and rearing a family, the greatest family ever, all the way into eternity called the church. And there is nothing deficient about that. Come under a king, and under the kingship of Jesus Christ, may his wisdom flow, especially to all the parents, all of us who are called to parent his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, cause us to bend the knee. Cause us to lower our heads. Cause us to give you all of our hearts. 
so that Jesus, you would be the wisest of them all and there would be no question about that. In our homes, in our small groups, in our fellowships, in our clubs, and in your church. Lord, I pray that you would heal and forgive many, many wounds from our own parents or what we have done as parents now. Help us to see that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the final word that triumphs over all of our guilt and shame. And we ask, oh God, that you would lead us forth. Teach us. Pass along wisdom so that we might parent to your glory and the world might be affected by your people. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.